Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Pirates Fan Forum here on DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcast Network. It's been a big day on the Podcast Network. I don't know if you guys were just watching the Ramon Foster show. He had a good old Mason Rudolph on. That was a pretty big episode. And then here we are coming in with Travis Snyder. So it's a star-studded day here on DK Pittsburgh Sports. Let's all just get excited. Jim's Jim's with me as always. I'm not even going to bother having him say hello. We're going to go right to Travis and... Everybody, welcome in Travis Snyder. You wanted him, you got him. Here he is. I appreciate the opportunity, guys, and hello to the Bucko fans that are listening out there. No, it's been a good time. Uh, looking back through your career here a little bit, you know, like it's 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 almost like you forget some things as as time goes by. It's been ten yeah. years, you know. Mm-hmm. Think about that. I mean, that makes me feel awful. And we should also say some people might know the lunchbox hero here as Moonraker. We have some friends up in Toronto that might that might remember oh, that. So. <laughs> what a throwback! I, I've admitted publicly I used to Google myself too much, and I remember seeing that kind of take off way back in the day. No pun intended. Yeah, well, I mean, it was based on your launch angle, right? You, you were up, you were up front about launch angle. You were doing that before it was cool. Yeah, you know what's crazy, and not to go too deep into that. I, I, I chased it later in my career and I lost it in the middle of my career when I started making swing changes. Again, any kid or any dad out there listening, backspin line drives, that turns into launch angle. Let's not get too caught up in trying to hit fly balls in the batting cage. Man, we could we could probably do a whole show just on that, Travis, but we'll try yeah. to we'll try to stay we'll try to stay um pirates baseball focused and talk about what's something that's very important to you and uh, near and dear to your heart so right. that's where we want to keep the focus today whatever you guys know i'm here we got a good hour with travis here we're going to talk some ball we're going to talk about his hero parent guide book that he's working on with seth taylor over at 3a focuses on helping parents be better sports parents for our kids and since jim's going through that right now and he desperately needs help I mean, he's lost so much hair and gone so gray in the time that he's been shipping his kid around. I figured let's get Travis on to talk about some of this stuff. (laughs) Hey, I go, I go right from here to uh, ice hockey. So yeah, it, it, Travis, you know, the, the, the dad duties never stop when you've got kids and they like sports. So for sure. It's our great, they're our greatest teachers and definitely take up the most time on our schedule. That's right. 
So we should probably start with a little bit of baseball, huh? Let's get people a baseball whistle wet a little bit, and then we'll head into a little bit of the, the parenting stuff. I, we'll split that over a couple segments because it's going to take some time and be fun. In the meantime, the little QR code that's partially blocking out Travis because I'm a poor graphic designer. Um, if you scan that with your phone, if you're watching on video, that's going to take you right to his website where you could purchase any of the books that we're going to talk about and uh, give you as much information as you could possibly ask for that's currently available. It's good stuff. That said, it's, it's more fun to listen to Travis talk about it. So let's do that first. I asked some old friends of yours before the show, Travis, Michael McHenry and Greg Brown. What do I have to get Travis talking about? They both, without any other thought, said, I have to have you talk about this epic barbecue you threw when the team was on the road up in Seattle. Yeah, I mean, it became kind of a tradition. The years that I stayed in the major leagues without getting sent down or hurt, we would go to Seattle and I'd have all the boys over. So I got to do it a couple of times uh, with the team in Toronto. And then with the uh, Pirates, we had so many young, freshly married, just it became a very tight knit group very quickly for me. Uh, and always look forward to hosting, whether it's my teammates or my friends back home. So we bought uh, about a whole cow worth of steaks and I was on the grill. We had, I feel like we had over half the roster there um, with a handful of my buddies, which we still laugh and joke about some of the, the experiences we had on that night at my house. But really just an opportunity for guys on the road to get together in a safe space uh, for me to get behind the grill and sear up some steaks for the boys and just spend a good three, four, five hours hanging out uh, without all the the pressure and the stimulation that comes from traveling around playing Major League Baseball. Uh, let's see. What else did I want to make sure I got to you first? Because Travis, the steak who, was delicious, who, but I can't taste it on podcasts, sadly. Who, yeah. who was the teammate that could eat the most? Who was just <clears throat> ridiculous at, at, at the dinner table? Uh, me, me, first of all, but Petey, uh, Pedro and I, we definitely hit it off for our love for food. Okay. Uh, he, he still calls me. Yeah. He still calls me Ron Swanson. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, yeah. the TV show and his personality, but any, any chance there's a Ron Swanson meme, uh, him and his wife, Kelly will, will exchange DMS on Instagram because there's still that, just that love, uh, between all of us, a lot of good meals spent together with Pedro and his wife, Kelly. Pedro is a famously good dude from what I hear from, from most of the guys I've talked to from that team. So yeah, I, I think Pedro was in a tough spot there uh, going through, you know, the ups and downs that he had while he was in Pittsburgh. I mean, some absolutely incredible years that he put together. Um, but ultimately he was a guy that cared more than anybody. And, and he showed that in his personal relationships with guys. And I think that's why you get that uh, sentiment about him because he really does care and, and is a good dude. Let's see. What was it like helping to bring playoff baseball back to the city of Pittsburgh after a 40-year drought, Travis? I mean, we're kind of on the cusp of maybe that coming back again here, you know, within the next year or so. Lest anyone think that you were just a bit player, you played 140 games for the Bucks in 2014. I mean, so lifelong fan and thank you because you helped bring something back that we missed. Yeah, I think starting with the playoff experience, I had never been to the playoffs, right? Toronto, we never really had a, a clear shot at the playoffs. 12, I got traded over. We were supposed to be the, you know, we were leading the division and we choked. Um, and I think it was a great learning experience for the organization from top to bottom. Uh, our leaders, uh, AJ, Rod, 
uh, and a few of the other guys, Clint Barmis was uh, just pivotal in helping us young guys understand what it takes to galvanize a clubhouse uh, and overcome the narratives, right. That trickle down from the media and the front office and everybody who's trying to get answers about why this works and why it doesn't ultimately as a clubhouse, you have to kind of lock those doors in a sense and, and take care of, of each other. And I think hurdle uh, and his leadership was a big part of, of bringing that back. Uh, you know, Neil Walker being a guy that was kind of a tweener veteran, similar to me, we had a couple of years in the league uh, and, and really took it. He took it upon himself to, to be a leader in that clubhouse Kutch being the MVP. I think the year before um, dealing with some injuries in 14, but in, in 13, he was obviously a massive part of, of all of our success. And <clears throat> I think when you, when I look back on it, you know, we had the shark tank, <clears throat> we had Grilly, we had Melanson. There's just so many Watson, uh, so many different dynamics uh, in each kind of positional group or, or pitching group that we had. Uh, and you just saw how much guys pulled for each other. And I remember in 14, you know, I went from opening day starter to a bench player. And, and as a bench, we took it upon ourselves every day to push each other uh, to make sure we were ready when we got that call to pitch hit or, or eventually start. And, and it was just fun to be a part of a, a unit, you know, that worked diligently for each other. We pulled for each other. Uh, and ultimately got to taste the champagne and, and experience the wild card blackout game, which again, I'm getting chills every time I talk about it, dude, it's just like, I've been to some really big Seahawks games. Sorry, Sealer fans. I know uh, I'm a Seahawks fan, but I, I've been in some epic uh, stadiums in terms of crowd noise and just the energy that you feel uh, being in the dugout. Cause I didn't start that day. I remember looking around and just like, Oh my God, I, my heart rate's at 140 right now. And I don't even have to go hit until I pinch it, you know, in the seventh or eighth inning. So. So, Travis, you mentioned something, and I want to I want to take this to what the Pirates are doing right now. And I don't know how much you follow things or not, but they've got a really young core. They're trying to get a lot of their improvement from within. You mentioned something about how nice it is to have veterans on your team whenever you're a younger player or in the in the league a couple years. Is that overblown by fans and the media? Or is it truly something is like when you're like, look, baseball's hard, man. And like, so do you do you need guys like that? Are they as big of a help as fans like to think that they are at times? I mean, it's character and personality dependent, but I, I do think it is an uh, integral part of the clubhouse culture. You don't have to have a team of veterans to win, um, but having the right veterans there to help the young guys that are going through first and second time experiences with the, the ups and downs, right, of a long season. Uh, understanding when you're in first place in July doesn't mean shit when it comes to the end of August or September, which we experienced in 2012. Uh, how easy it is to allow the energy from the media and the fan base to creep into your clubhouse and start to, to affect the way that we go about our daily routines. And as much as fans hate hearing the cliche uh, lines that I, I know a lot of athletes use, myself included, we have to dumb down that mindset as for lack of a better term to stay in the daily grind and to stay in that moment and understand as excited as the fan base might be in July or as pissed off as they might be in July, we still got to go and play another 60 games. Right. And I think that's the one uh, area where veterans can really lend that, that area of expertise and knowledge, assuming they've kind of been through it and understand it um, to be able to help those players understand that the finish line is, is way too far down the road to start looking at games back. And I know organizations have to make moves in terms of trade deadlines, and that's kind of what the fans are, are living and dying by, right, when it comes to that July-August time. But really understanding um, 
the energy field, right, of a clubhouse and how important that is over 162 games because you're going to have your seven-game win streaks where, you know, everybody's just kicked back, relaxed, no stress, and then you're going to lose seven, right? And then you still got 50, 60 more games to play and there's going to be another win streak and there's going to be another losing streak in there. It always happens, right? There's just too many games. So being able to separate those kinds of things, help young guys as they're uh, experience success, success and how to deal with that, experiencing failure, how to deal with that. I think that's where the veteran uh, piece becomes very important for young players to understand. As long as, again, if you have the wrong veterans in there that are pissed off and they're bitter all the time, um, unless they're AJ Burnett, they're really good guys. AJ was awesome about that. We called him <laughs> JA, right? Because on start day, you wanted nothing to do with AJ. And the other four days of the week, he was, you know, the, the happiest guy in the clubhouse. So there's definitely uh, dynamics to everybody's personality. And I think as we all get older in the clubhouse and we start to understand uh, the different leadership qualities we each bring to the table, that was something I really enjoyed, right? As, as being, I never got to that 10-year veteran status, but I'd kind of been around the block a few times by the time I was 25, 26. Uh, and being able to have conversations with guys that maybe were my age or older, uh, but be able to just share some of that experience and, and wisdom with them uh, to be able to help them get over something they're going through. And that, that's what makes a great team, whether it's in professional sports or, or any work environment that you're in, is people pulling for each other and picking each other up. This is awesome. We have to take a break, unfortunately. But for those of you watching live, special treat for you today instead of an ad i'm gonna play a highlight from travis snyder's career here in pittsburgh and that's gonna be our break in the live version so if you're listening recorded show up next time skip work the lefty russell feels like the eighth inning instead of the sixth yeah. And the umpires are, uh, the managers are acting that way. There's a high fly ball deep to right center field. Back and gone! Clear the deck! Cannonball coming! Grand salami for Travis Snyder! 5-3 Pirates! Pinch hit Granny! That's got to be pretty special feeling. Come off the bench, pinch hit... And knock in four with one strike. And we are back to the Pirates fan forum here on DK Pittsburgh Sports. Travis, I'm not going to ask you what it felt like to hit a grand slam like that, but in May... Your team isn't really in a race quite yet. You know, you think you got something here. You were pretty good the year before. You had just gone through the epic collapse and all that, you know, that everyone talked about from 2012. And you hit a home run like that. (laughs) Does it feel like this is a different thing when that happens? Or is it just, hey, that was a great swing. Good job. Yeah, it was something I learned uh, quickly in Pittsburgh as a coming from the AL to the NL, right? How to prepare as a bench player, as a pinch hitter, uh, something that that staff did a really good job of teaching us uh, things when it comes to mindset and approach as pinch hitters. Um, but but as players, right? We want to be everyday guys, right? At the, at the end of the day, we want to be out there every single day. Uh, and being able to look your ego in the face and say, this is what I got to do to help the team win. And getting past that, I think is difficult for every individual who goes through that. 
Um, being able to deliver in those moments, it's tough to compare a pinch hit grand slam to any other home run that you hit, right? Because it's like you basically got one job, and I, I fortunately hit some big pinch hit home runs in my career there um, that I look back on as some of my best memories because I didn't play consistently well throughout my entire period of, of being a Pittsburgh Pirate. But having an impact on the game with one swing of the bat, uh, funny enough, we were talking about veterans. A guy on the mound, Sean Camp, was one of the vets I had in Toronto in my arch rival in fantasy football for our fantasy leagues uh, <laughs> that we played in for years. So it's a it's a highlight I'll send to him every couple of years just to remind him that I got him uh, in oh, that yeah. big situation. But I, I think if you ask any of the guys, uh, whenever I did get the hit in those kind of moments, the amount of intensity behind the I-5s coming back into the dugout were next level. I, I didn't have that self-awareness until somebody finally told me, but I'm coming in there just full – full speed, as much force as I got behind that. Because there's a lot of frustration too, right? When you're a guy right. who knows you're capable of doing more, and, and that's kind of the story of my career, uh, being able to kind of just release all that energy in one swing uh, and see that ball just sneak over the uh, home, the home run line there in, in right center field and rounding the bases with a big smile on your face. It's, it's fun. Well, let me ask you, because, you know, pinch hitting is, is so – it's such a different – aspect of of playing right and and you had to make that adjustment in your career as to from going as you know high high draft pick you're playing every day you're getting all the at bats you're getting everything and then all of a sudden at the very highest level you're asked to do something that is extremely difficult and uh, tell me how was your approach and how did you try to make that transition or what did you do to prepare and why do you think some guys just never get the hang of it um is uh, just any any feedback you have there because i i've always said it's one of the hardest things to do in sports and i don't think people appreciate it truly enough how hard it is yeah i think as a competitor, like I said, you want to be out there every day. So your ego on some level is going to be hurt when you're not an everyday player. And then being able to get to the point where you accept your role on the team doesn't mean I, I'm satisfied with being the 25th guy on the roster. But if that's my role and I got a pitch in the eighth inning, that that's my job. In that situation, uh, Coming over to Pittsburgh, there was a lot of focus on getting on the first fastball in the zone, right? And trying to simplify the approach. You don't have three or four at-bats to kind of feel a guy out, how they're pitching you. It's just get on the first fastball in the zone and put your best swing on it. And if you do that, good things are going to happen more often than not. Again, we're talking a game of percentages where three out of 10 is good, right? But being able to get a good pitch to hit, put a good swing on it early in the at-bat, trying to avoid getting deep in counts where guys are going to use their best pitches to get you out. Uh, and that was the mindset that we took on as, as a bench unit. Uh, and I think what, what it made it even more special is, you know, we had Tabby, we had Gabby, we had, uh, Ike Davis, we had all these different personalities, right? A lot of us were big prospects at one point in our career. And then we're all kind of relegated to these platoon or, or bench roles at some point in our career with Pittsburgh and just the genuine pull for each other. Uh, and the push that we had before and after games to, to get our work in, right? To be prepared if in 2014, like what happened for me, uh, getting a chance to play every day down the stretch and taking advantage of that, right? And getting into 140 games instead of just punting the season because I started as the opening day starter. And then next thing I know in June, I'm a bench player, right? So there's so many ebbs and flows in the season. It's tough to maintain that dog mindset every single night when you're getting kicked in the teeth from a personal standpoint. It makes it easier when the team's winning, obviously, to buy into the overall team concept. But I think the culture itself that was created there uh, and the guys that bought into that culture really 
fed off of each other's energy and made going up there in those situations something where you knew what your approach was, you give it everything you got, right? And then you come back to the dugout, success or failure, knowing that I at least accomplished the goal of getting on a pitch early in the at-bat, putting a good swing on it. And from there, you just grind. Yeah, it's 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 just execute the game plan and and then you the results are the results, but you did what you were supposed to do and did your job. For sure. And there's a lot, there's a lot of guys, man, that go up there that are thinking about their batting average because they're hitting 220 and they're pinch hitting. And that's just a natural human reaction that I think gets overlooked in sports, right? There's a lot of personal baggage guys are bringing up to the plate, uh, even everyday players, right? When they're going through this funk mentally uh, and physically, whatever it may be, uh, trying to go up there and compete, right? And separate all that noise that mentally is going to creep in just because that's the way human beings are designed, but getting better at filtering out that noise, locking in on your approach and going out there and doing your best job to execute. We should probably transition a little bit here to talking about the hero program. That's really something that's become important to you because of things you dealt with and and things you've been through. So tell us a little bit about why this program speaks to you, why it was important. Yeah. So the company 3A Athletics, uh, our first product is the parent guide book hero. Uh, the title hero is, is specific because we want parents to be the hero in the relationship with their kids. And as you know, and I know, right, being dads, it's very difficult to raise a child when you don't have a degree in child psychology and you don't have a bunch of, of knowledge into what a seven-year-old is capable of understanding and dealing with emotionally and just from a mental development standpoint. So I mean, nowadays, Travis, they think they have those degrees, though, like coming out of kindergartens. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and there's, again, there's a million challenges out there that parents are facing. I think specifically in youth sports, right? We've seen a trend of mental health issues. We've seen, uh, you know, a scary trend of more kids committing suicide in high school or in college that are, are great athletes. And, and again, I think 20 years ago, if you just made it to the next level, that was just some level of accomplishment, right? That people could really tie their identity to and not think twice about it. I think as we've, as we've evolved as a society and these kids now that are growing up are different than the way we were raised, right? And we're trying to to make better choices as parents on how we raise and how we talk to our kids. The book Hero itself was originally written for soccer. Seth Taylor, the author, is my partner in the company Three Athletics. And we took that product that was originally written for soccer. Now we have a baseball and a softball version. We're working on a basketball, a football, a golf, and tennis version down the road. But essentially the the, the focus of that book is improving the communication between the parent and the child, right? Because that's a difficult thing to navigate, especially when we only can draw from what our parents, the way they talk to us or the way the coaches talk to us. And not everybody had great experiences with their parents or their coaches as they were growing up. So it makes it very difficult for parents to just have that level of self-awareness to understand where some of the things I do as a parent every single day that I don't like that I do are are stemming from something I experienced in my childhood. So a big part of it Mm -hmm. is creating that self-awareness. The second part of it is really trying to prepare parents for inevitable situations. What happens if your son gets moved from shortstop to left field? How do you handle that conversation with a coach? How do you handle that conversation with your kid? If your kid gets cut from a team, how do you handle that conversation with your child? Because we can all sit here and play the victim and say we're getting screwed and say this guy doesn't like us and that's why it didn't work out. But this is really a teaching opportunity, right? A learning opportunity for the children and a teaching opportunity for the parents to be able to say, hey, let's sit down and have an intentional conversation about how you are feeling, right? And as a parent, I got to open my ears and shut my mouth and let you tell me how you feel, what you like, what you don't like, 
how we can come up with a plan to, to figure out what's next for you if it's staying in the sport that we're playing or if it's finding something else that, that you're interested in that you want to pursue and we can support you on that path. And I think parents, again, there's a number of dynamics. There's a financial commitment, right? No parent wants to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars for their kids to play sports and their kids to, to not be bought in or not want to put in the work. But ultimately, it's it's a tough dynamic, right? As a, as a parent mm-hmm. to want to provide the best opportunity for your kid without Im- imposing, right, what we feel is what's going to be best for them. And part of parenting is looking out for your kid and putting them on the right track. But it's also about being able to support them in ways that later on, right, down the road when they're 17, 18, or 20, 22, and they decide to stop playing baseball or whatever sport it is, that there's a healthy foundation, right, of that love between you and your child. And it's not being confused by how intense or pressure-filled the world of youth sports has gotten to be able to say, okay, I know mom and dad love me no matter if I go 0 for 4, I go 4 for 4. I know the conversation in the car with my parents before and after is going to be framed in a way where I feel safe to be able to express my feelings and tell them what's really going on with me instead of just sit there and get drilled by dad or mom for 30 or 40 minutes in the car about how I missed the cutoff man or how I didn't execute my pitch or whatever else, right? And like every parent, and this is what I'm realizing, every single parent goes through this on the sidelines. I still go through this, right? With my seven-year-old kid playing basketball. And I'm looking there, I'm like, I get this feeling like, oh, I got I to tell him what to do. And it's like, no, I got to take that step back, detach from the situation, understand my kid's seven years old and he's experiencing playing a sport, right? And he's going, I got to trust the coaches, right? If we're lucky enough to have the right coach in the right place, trust the coaches to be able to have that conversation if something needs to be addressed. And then if and when the time is appropriate, right, not right after the game to sit there and be like, you should have passed the ball more, you should have done this, give them an opportunity to talk about their feelings without you imposing your thoughts on them. It let's is stick that with is, coach. Yeah, let's stick with no. coaching for a minute because Jim and I, you know, we both have sports experience. We both played. I'm not, not at like any kind of big level. Yeah. Good n- enough, that we, enough that we think we know what we're talking about, right? So yeah. how, how, is a, how does a parent approach a situation like when the coach is maybe teaching something they don't necessarily think is right yeah hitting in particular you know yourself jeff fry's made a career out of it right <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah well you know yourself there's a billion different ways to do it and a billion people that think these ways are dead wrong how do how do you as a parent know the line I think, again, this is what we want to get further into with the content that we'll be developing after Hero. And we do touch on not specific to tactical and technical instruction for your child, but understanding that it's our job as parents to find the right coaches, right? And if a coach isn't handling a situation appropriately, if there, if there's some kind of like extreme trauma that's being, you know, shown on a, on a, on a field or in a batting cage, then that's something we need to step in and address. But being able to find the right coaches, uh, who who had the right message, right? Which is very easy to say and harder to do. Uh, it, it part of it is parent education on being able to build that trust with your coach and have that line of communication. But ultimately, my opinion on this of spending hours, hundreds and thousands of hours with major league hitters and batting cages, myself included, we all speak a language, right? And it ain't the same language that you speak or I speak. It, we all have our own individual way of understanding how a swing or how a throwing mechanic is taught. There are a lot of people out there that want to tell you this is the way or you're not going to make it. And to me, that's immediately a red flag. As you mentioned, Jeff Rye would, would, would echo that, right? If, if it's one way or the highway, you lost me already because right. I've listened to the best hitting coaches at the highest level talking about doing something one way and losing 
the attention of their hitters because the same thing over and over and over to every single hitter is not applicable, right? And coaches, the same way as players, we get stuck in these ruts where it's like we think it's a it's a one way out type of scenario. It's really about understanding what the, the player or the or the the kid on your team is experiencing and then being able to relate to them in a way where they're going to understand it. And I think for young kids, it's especially important for parents to understand in these early developmental years, 10, 11, 12 years old, up until that point, focusing more on a play type of scenario than a very structured, rigid uh, developmental environment is not something that people want to hear me say, but that's ultimately what kids need more of because there's less of that stress and that pressure to have to do everything perfectly, right? I look at my two kids I try and spend as much time as I can with them without forcing them to go out and take batting practice or shoot basketball hoops, find ways to make games around what it is, the skills that they're trying to develop. And, and most importantly, encourage the effort, right? Because my kid wants to get better at dribbling. He recognizes he's not very good at dribbling. I asked my son, Hey, bud, how much have you practiced dribbling? Oh, well, not very much. Okay. Well, that, that's an, that's a, that's a principle in our house. If we're going to be good at something, we got to practice it. Right. And then finding ways to create a playing environment for that kid while they're practicing the skill development, I think is for me as a parent where I've seen uh, a lot of success, however you want to define that in terms of getting your kid engaged in something, but also learning like if your kid's done, your kid's done. Right. You can't force him to take. 10 or 20 more until he gets it perfect. If he's the one saying, I want 10 or 20 more, then you realize, okay, this is something he's, he's into or she's into. And I want to be able to support that. And that's where, again, you can rely on your coaches for, for extracurricular drills that you can do. But again, not rushing this into the seven, eight, nine year old years where everybody wants to specialize and become the next Neil Walker, right? It's like, no, 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 no. Neil Walker and Travis Snyder and these guys that have found success in their career, it was because they were passionate about becoming a, a great baseball player. And mom and dad were there to support them in, in that endeavor. Obviously, Walk had a former MLB uh, player as a pop, so he had a little bit of an advantage over all of us. But at the end of the day, that relationship, you know, with your kid in the sport they play, it's got to be driven from the kid. And if dad or mom is the one that's constantly cracking the whip saying, we got to go practice and we got to go do this at too early of an age, right? Or even in that teenage years, you're going to see kids get burnt out. You're going to put an extra stress or strain on your relationship with your kid. And that's something for me as a dad. I always want my kids to be able to come to me as a parent, not just not as a coach, right? And then when the opportunity yeah. comes that they want me to help them with something, then I will impart that wisdom on them. Or say, hey, I don't know enough about basketball. Let's find somebody that can help you. Jim, all you because that's what I do with is, hockey. I'm, this I'm is your free with, therapy, Jim. <laughs> no, I do that with hockey. I, I, anything I can do to seek out the help because I can't help him there, right? right. I can't skate. And yep. I, I don't know what to look for. So, but I think, Travis, something that really stood out to me is I was watching um, Kutch talk about the book, right? Yeah. And he said, you know, I think he was under the impression, I think maybe a lot of people would be is, oh, I'm going to get this book and it's going to help me fix my kid. Yep. And it's, it's a look inward at mm-hmm. how to be a better parent and a parent that's involved with maybe um, a, a, a child that's obviously doing something sports related and how we behave yep. and how we communicate and interact with our children as opposed to, oh, how do I get this out of my kid and fix him? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually way more uh, self-reflection type deal that I think that I think we all as parents really do need because we've only been taught one way. 
Yeah, and I think you'll hear me say the term self-awareness, right, in, in all of these conversations we have, because in my own therapeutic journey, right, I had no idea the things that I know now at 35 that I would have known even three or four years ago after going through hours of therapy and, and marriage counseling and just having people around me, a Clint Hurdle, right, somebody that is introspective enough, but also somebody who was a leader in the sense that he was continuing to discover more and more about himself from his early years, crazy years to, to where he settled, right, as a, as a great major league manager and, and just a human being. Being able to create self-awareness for every single human being, I think, is just a, a foundational piece that all of us uh, tend to overlook, right? Because we just get comfortable and we have our way of doing things and well, that's just the way I am, right? And it's like, well, yeah, you can, you can say that and that could be the narrative you live by the rest of your life. Or you can say, hey, I want to be a better version of myself. I know myself included, right? I have tons of character defects, tons of things that creep into my marriage. They creep into the way that I parent that I'm now aware of. It doesn't mean I fixed all those problems, right? But at least I'm aware of those things and I continue to focus and work through the ups and downs that come with parenting and just marriage in general. So having this opportunity, right? As Kutch said, you think, oh, this is the guidebooks that's going to teach me how to create a first round pick. That, that has nothing to do with it, right? There's nothing about skill development in this book in terms of how you teach a kid to hit. It's really about creating the self-awareness for parents to create that shift, right? In the parents' energy and mood and, and just experience of watching their kid play or practice a sport, becoming aware of the things that come up in that experience, right? Like something my dad said or about being late, right? For me, it was a big challenge the first couple of years being home, being five or 10 minutes late for anything, right? And that's, again, I was wired that way from a young age the way my dad raised me. But then being a professional athlete, if you were late, you got cut. You didn't make the body like you're gone. So, learning how to like reframe some of these experiences and, and maintain the perspective, right? That this is youth sports. This isn't do or die. This isn't a life or death situation. There's an opportunity for plenty of, uh, plenty of opportunities for us to teach our kids how to be punctual, how to be accountable, how to develop grit, all those types of things. But we as parents want to teach those things, impart that wisdom on kids, oftentimes at a too young of an age or at the wrong time, right? And it's not because we're trying to do wrong by our kids. Yeah, and there's such, and that's why I think right now a book like this and 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 you know a program like this is so important is because there's such a pressure right now with kids, right? And these programs and all the the travel teams and the coaching and the instruction and the and so like for me, I you know, having played a lot when I was younger and now being a dad, I, I liken it to like being out of the dating game for 30 years. Yep. And like, uh, you're in this like weird, you know, um, environment where you can feel the pressure, right? You can feel everyone's trying to, you know, oh, yeah. get their kid the best this and the best that. And, and so that's why I think it's very important right now to have this because what we end up doing as parents is we, we feel that pressure. And then, mm -hmm. so we internalize it and then we're going to project it onto our kids if we're not careful. Mm -hmm. And in today's day and age with, with everything so heightened about, uh, we got to keep up with the Joneses and what they're doing. And is, is Timmy getting this instruction and he's on this team and my, my son's on the B team. And I just feel like th th there's such a space for this. And so that's why I'm so appreciative of it as we go through different phases in our lives of from being the kid to now being the parent and not wanting to project that onto our kids. Yeah. And I think if we all took a moment and sat back and said, okay, what are my top five sports memories? And this is one of the things, one of the exercises in the book, 
and you can think back to something your dad would do during the games when you're when he was watching you play or your mom or whoever was there for you you can think back to something a coach told you, you could think like these core memories you don't even realize you're carrying with you or actually working on a daily basis in your subconscious right and then will dictate what your response is to a, a particular situation in the game and it could be yelling at a referee, right? Like that's another topic we just briefly touch on that's going to be, you know, something we dive deeper into is like, why do parents yell at referees? Like most of the kids that are referees or umpires in new sports aren't even 18 years old, right? right. So it's like, it, it's separating the idea that you can yell at the ref who's blowing the call in the Steelers uh, playoff game versus the the referee who's refing your kid's AAU basketball game, right? And you sit there and you look around Take a moment in your next sporting event with kids and just look around at the parents and see what parents cannot understand or cannot like grasp the fact that this umpire is not a perfect human being and isn't going to make a bad call. And that, I think that's something that gets lost, especially in the youth sports space. Yeah. Uh, I think the pressure of state rankings and player rankings starting at such a young age, right? We won a Little League state championship when we were nine and when we were 11. There was no social media. There was very few publications that ever talked about these kind of things other than a local newspaper. Nowadays, you got kids who have access, right, to all these different social media platforms. You have parents that have access to all these social media platforms. There's massive corporations that have built billion dollar companies on the egos for lack of a term better term for parents right to be able to say well little johnny is the number nine ranked player in the state at 10 years old and his team went 82 and four and they won the you know the northeast whatever little league world series championship right and that becomes the narrative and the identity right for the parent and that reaffirms well all these decisions that we made leading up to this were good but what i would challenge you to to reframe that perspective and say okay Look at the kids who go to the Little League World Series. How many of those kids end up being successful in their high school careers and in their college careers and then professional careers, right? Because if you're the best at 12, the chances are going to be the best at 18 are pretty slim. Some different than others, but for the most part, kids are experiencing this label, right, that has been put on them, the kid that played in the Little League World Series, the kid that won the state championship. And now all of a sudden, you're starting to create this extra layer of pressure on a kid to have to live up to this external expectation, right? Which is something I talked about a lot in my career of starting to read articles about myself and Google myself and listening to all this external noise. That creates a pressure consciously and subconsciously that we overlook as parents, right? So there's a lot of reasons to be excited if your kid's team goes out and wins the weekend tournament and you want to celebrate that. But I would encourage you to celebrate the effort, right? Not the result. And I go back to the growth mindset, uh, fixed mindset, a mindset book written by Carol Dweck. Fantastic read for all parents out there and how you encourage your kids, right? And there's scientific back studies to show the difference between study groups where kids are told they're smart or they're a great baseball player or they're really good at something versus, hey, we're going to praise all the effort that you're putting into this and continually put that on the pedestal, the effort, because the effort is a life skill, right? Something that can be applied to other spaces outside of whatever sport they're in. And I think those are the life skills that we really want to extract, right, from this beautiful vehicle sports, youth sports is for kids to experience things and focus on the most important pieces that we can teach kids as foundational life skills that are going to apply right to life after baseball or whatever sport that they play and give them a different sense of self-worth and identity outside of just being a good baseball player. I mean, Travis, in the greater scheme of the baseball media, I'm an absolute nobody. This is just to illustrate how crazy this is. Daily. I probably get two or three DMs a day 
somebody showing me their kid doing something in a batting cage that might be 16, 17 years old, wanting me to start pumping them up for the draft. Like I have any say in that anyway, but like that's, that's the level of desperation some parents are getting to. Right. But I would, I would also say that those parents think that they're doing everything they can right to help their kid. And and we got to acknowledge, we got to acknowledge that the parents, most of this is coming from the right place. Right. right? It it is. but it's something that I feel like as a culture of youth sports has gotten out of control, right? And there aren't very many people that are having the conversation that I'm really trying to build around this with my partners and the, and the people we're building in our network to understand, first of all, we got to be able to give ourselves grace as parents. There's not a perfect parent out there. We have to be able to say, you know what? I am that parent sometimes as I'm admitting to you guys right now. I still get that that sense of, of anxiety when I'm on the sidelines with my kids playing a sport. But it's creating the awareness as to where that anxiety is coming from, right? And how I react to those situations and how delicate and how important those conversations you have with your kid, whether it's in the game, after the game, in the car, et cetera, how we, how we frame those conversations, right, is what's really creating the, the foundation of how kids are going to be thinking and learning and, and applying themselves to situations. Because if they feel like, well, I went out and tried something, I sucked and mom or dad just blew me up about it. I'm probably not going to feel very safe the next time I have to go and try something new or, or this is a, a championship game. And I, I choked, right? I cried myself off yeah. the mountain in the Western regionals of the little league tournament, right? We won state. We go to Western regionals. I'm the best player on the team. I throw three, three strikeouts in the first inning, hit a home run. The next thing I can't throw a strike, man. I had an anxiety attack, which was an asthma attack and was in right field, couldn't hardly breathe. I got taken off the mound. And to me, I, I thought, well, I just have sports-induced asthma. And looking back on it, I was like, well, no, there's just a shit ton of pressure that I'm dealing with as an 11-year-old child, right? He's kind of been put up on this pedestal at a young, early age to go out there and have to be perfect, right? And I, I can that's one of those core memories for me that I can tap into immediately when we have these conversations because I remember it like it was yesterday. This is awesome, man. We got to take another break. So we got another highlight. Hope everybody. So this is my absolute favorite, and I remember this one, and it, and it hurt the Mets, which made me even happier. All right. Uh, if he does test the free agent market, that he get a few uh, inquiries, and it's time. Take it off the board. This is what an outfielder, I think, dreams about. Making a catch like this. Listen to the buzz in this crowd right now. They're seeing the replay. Welcome back to the Pirates Fan Forum. Travis, first question I have to ask. You grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Were you trying to be Ken Griffey Jr.? Or did you better, it? <laughs> you better believe it. You better believe. It. I remember Little League Day at the Kingdom, walking on the. Uh, you know, you get to circle the field, and we were out on the track. And first thing I did when I got to that outfield wall, and I have a picture somewhere in my house of me trying to climb that wall. And, and it was something you know my father and I spent a ton of time, not necessarily practicing robbing home runs, right? But I would make him hit me hundreds of balls uh, across the street into the park that we we lived across from. 
and just diving and laying out. And just, again, I think this is something for parents to understand. If your kid has the drive to want to sit there and, and think about these types of situations at eight, nine, 10 years old, practicing, you know, two outs, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded in the World Series, like that's a genuine love for a sport, right? And that was something yeah. going into that situation. I think I was as surprised as anybody that I came down with a ball. Uh, at the, I didn't really have a lot of emotion that I showed on my face right there. Cause I, again, mentally I was in a space where I just didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't know who I was, but making that play is definitely the highlight of my defensive career of highlight reel. Uh, you were up there for a minute too. Yeah. Yeah. You were up there for a minute. For, for the average fan out there, there are chain link fences in some ballparks. Those are extremely easier to climb uh, than, say, your hard panel outfield walls uh, that you'll find in other stadiums. So the timing of everything, kind of the stars were all aligned there for the big 240-pound man to climb up on that fence and just kind of put the arm over there and reach over. And again, it, it felt like the ball was like halfway out of my glove when it stayed in, and I couldn't believe it. Well, it, that's 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 one of the improvements baseball has made that I think is a good one. Is is they you talked about the kingdom and how high those those padded fences were, right? Yeah. And uh, Montreal had the same thing in Three Rivers, and Toronto. so they short yeah Toronto they shortened yeah. them a little bit and gave guys a chance to make those kinds of plays. And yours was just perfectly timed. Also, being a lefty, you have to come up over it a little bit, you know, backhanded. So um, those plays to me stick out. No offense, you know, I love seeing home runs and whatnot. But I look at those plays and think those are just as special. I know fans might not remember them as much, but I love seeing the defensive stuff. I yeah, def- definitely took a lot of pride because I wasn't a very good defensive player early in my career. And that's something I had to work hard on. And when you get the opportunity to pick your pitcher up, uh, you know, taking away a double in the gap or, or throwing a guy out at second, trying to stretch it or, or robbing a home run, right? I only got to do that twice in my career. But definitely, that's, I think, what makes it even more special is you just don't see guys robbing home runs every single day. You see home nope. runs every day. Yeah. So. I don't want to ask you about specific team goings on because I don't think that's fair to you. You know, you're not you're not following the Pirates closely, I'm sure. But you've been around a bunch of baseball teams. So in light of the Pirates getting around as Chapman and Andrew McCutcheon's here, have you ever wound up on a team with somebody you had history with? And does this stuff kind of resolve itself pretty easily usually? Do you know the history with Kutch and Chapman and I, I think I was there for the, uh, there was some beaning and some yes. words said, but then they played together in New York. I, uh, yes. that's my understanding. Um, Do you remember I, that, I guess. I don't remember the, you know, what may have happened in New York, but I, I think some Pittsburgh fans may remember Carlos Gomez uh, and my interaction with Carlos on uh, Easter Sunday of 2014. And, and Carlos and I were then teammates uh, in major league spring training with the Texas Rangers and, and, Lo and behold, Jeff Bannister, our bench coach from Pittsburgh, is our manager in Texas. So walking in there and seeing Carlos had signed with them, and we were I think he was a major league free agent, uh, and I was on a minor league deal, but we're both in the same camp, right? And early on in camp, uh, you know, I had seen Carlos obviously on the field, and I ran into, into him in a restaurant right after the fight when we went to Milwaukee the next time. I, you know, we're standing outside of a a restaurant. It's not like I'm just drop my gloves and start throwing blows at the guy on the street, but it was something, you know, obviously I was passionate about at that time. And, uh, you know, walking into camp, there was obviously there's some awkwardness, but I think for the most part, guys are able to get to the point 
where when you play against people, you have a completely different perspective than you do when you get to spend every day with them in the clubhouse. And I don't know Aroldis Chapman personally, so I can't speak on what type of teammate he is and what kind of human right. being he is. But, you know, I, I know Cutch well enough to know that Cutch is a leader and he's somebody, if there is an issue, it's probably going to get resolved pretty quickly. Uh, and if there's no issue, it's, it's just two guys, right, that were out there on the field competing against each other. Uh, tempers flare and, and things are misconstrued. And that, again, that's what part of life is, you know, we make mistakes and we got to learn from them. And, and if you're sharing the same uniform, the same clubhouse, you better deal with that tension early and, and get it done. Uh, that way the, the greater focus remains on winning games and, and ultimately going to the World Series. I think cuts just fire one fastball off his hip. It's over, right? Let's just get it done in the locker room day one and call it a day, right? Yeah, I think um, Cutch is too. I think Cutch is too nice to do that. But yeah. I agree. I agree. I I know we we build up an awful lot of dislike for Chapman. So now we have to kind of yeah. You got you got a lot of layers. You got to pull back. Yes. I respect. I mean, I remember they told me to go pinch hit uh, against Chapman. You know, lefty on lefty. This is early in my Pittsburgh tenure. Uh, and this is before he had really learned how to throw off-speed pitches for strikes. He quickly figured that out in the, in the following years, which kind of made it really difficult in his prime. But yeah. uh, again, just one of those in his prime, one of the, the hardest guys to face, especially once he figured out how to throw a breaking ball for a strike. And we got another guy here that I think you can probably relate to, Henry Davis. And, you know, top pick, kind of rushed through the system. You know, you were 14th overall pick in 2006 by the Blue Jays. You blew through their system. In 2008, expectations were high for you, right? And what's it like starting that journey with those kind of expectations at the major league level? I didn't mind the expectations, at least consciously I didn't mind them. Uh, until I got sent down. And I've talked about that a lot because I was always the best player on every team. I, I showed that in the minor leagues. I could hit with anybody at any league that I went to. Uh, and so then getting to the major leagues and having the first two months of success that I did, it was kind of like, all right, this is the path and this is the the narrative that's going to be, you know, the prophecy that's going to be fulfilled. I'm a franchise player. I'm going to be here for 10 years. I'm going to make $100 million. We're going to go to the playoffs. The city of Toronto is going to go crazy, right? And this is where the brain starts to go. Right, right. In, instead of maintaining a focus on the present. And, and for any young kid out there uh, who's going through that experience, number one, utilize your resources, your coaches, your teammates. It's it's easier said than done to ask for help, especially asking for help before you need it, right? And I think that's the society we we all subscribe to is like, well, I don't need help. I don't need help until shit really hits the fan. You're like, well, what? I guess, yeah, I really need to get help. So, you know, it, it is a difficult uh, road to walk as a young player. Um culture, the clubhouse and the veteran guys that are there and how they support that young player, I think is, is, is very important. I had a lot of really good veteran guys in Toronto as well as in Pittsburgh, um, but was lost in a lot of my own stuff at the time. I wasn't even aware of that I was dealing with, you know, losing my mom and, and stuff that was happening away from the field uh, that I had just kind of shoved down there and just said, baseball is my safe place. Right. And then as soon as baseball uh, was taken from me in the sense that I was no longer good enough to play at the major league level and I had to go down the minor leagues. I never fully recovered from that. And that was something as I've learned right later in my life, as I've kind of unpacked a lot of this drama, um, understanding how that affected me and the way that I was able to receive information from coaches, uh, the way I was able to interact with my teammates and, and the confidence that I brought to the field every single day was definitely not unshakable, right? And that's my grade out of high school as a 
makeup guy was an 80 plus plus. I had a local scout share, share his old scouting report on me. I'm still good buddies with, and it's 80 plus plus. And that's the makeup that I was bringing into this, which is why the Blue Jays felt comfortable pushing me through the system at the rate that they did. And I genuinely believe that I deserve to be there. And I think that was the biggest, uh, the biggest pill for me to swallow that was, I probably choked on for the rest of my career was, was I really good enough? Right. Cause that was the first time in my life. Somebody had told me I wasn't good enough to play on that team. Um, despite playing varsity football and baseball as a freshman and, and all the way through my career. Yeah. And it's hard to hear the first time, isn't it? Right. Jim, go ahead. No, in, in you were 20 when you, when you got called up, correct? Yeah. And so um, that's the, that's the thing too, is like, um, you, you, you know, 20 at the time you think, you think you've got it all figured out and, you know, but we know now, Hey, 20, man, you're just, you're still a kid. Yeah. And, um, that to me is the tricky part about dealing with um, players in general is, is when they're when they're young and talented is knowing when is the right time to pull the trigger and bring someone up and how will they respond to that and mm-hmm. you see some guys handle it some guys handle it better than others and I I I appreciate the fact that you've been so forthcoming about you know that that is something that you did not handle well and yeah. looking back on it. It, do you think you were called up too early from a mental standpoint? Because physically, I think you think you were there, but mentally, looking back on it, how do you view that at this at this point? Yeah, I think my situation, everybody's situation is different, right? But <clears throat> for me specifically, having lost my mom, <coughs> excuse me, in 2007, and by the end of 2008, I'm in the big leagues. And to me, it was like, I'm on top of the world. Uh, I've achieved this dream I've been dreaming of since I was three years old. And, you know, life is just going to continue down this path of sunshine and roses and home runs. And, you know, it's just going to be great. I was not prepared for the adversity that I faced, as I mentioned, when I got sent down. And I don't know if there's a, a, you know, an app or a formula or or a test that can tell an organization, hey, dude, this guy's not going to be able to handle getting sent down the way of Mike Trout or somebody who maybe went up and down once or twice in their career and then stuck for the rest of their career and performed up to their expectations and the external expectations. <clears throat> I think it's really case to case dependent, right? Um, you know, any organization, I feel like their, their, their biggest advantage is getting to know the person right outside of just the baseball player and really being able to build a support group around that person um, for the eventual ups and downs that baseball is going to bring you. Uh, and that, again, it's easier said than done, but I think that's the biggest challenge that organizations face is they have young prospects that are going in a similar path that I went through and, and wanting to use me, right, as an example of a cautionary tale for rushing a player too quickly. I don't know that mentally I wasn't able or I wasn't prepared, right, to play in the major leagues. It was, I was dealing with some lower back issues that I had since the offseason. I was in a tough spot because I felt like I couldn't go on the DL because there's just a lot of the veteran grit in the clubhouse. It's like, if you're on the training table, which I was a lot early in my career, um, you get looked at a different way. And even though I had great relationships with those guys, I became very self-conscious about that stuff. And I think dealing with injuries, knowing when you're hurt, when you're injured is, is a difficult thing for young kids to really decipher and understand, can I actually go out there and play to a level that's going to help my team win? Uh, and is also going to put me in a position to be able to be on the scene for the whole year, right? And I think looking back on my career in Pittsburgh, some of my best games were played with two hamstring sleeves on, you know, two pole hamstrings and like just out there grinding. And that's where I, I developed a lot of my respect and love for my teammates and coaches in Pittsburgh because they saw me grind through a lot of these things. Later in my career, 
um, that early in my career, I didn't really know how to handle, right? And be able to go out there and perform or at least communicate to Hurdle or the training staff like, hey, dude, I cannot run, but I can hit a home run, right? So if you need me to hit in a big situation, I I can go out there and do it. And funny enough, I did that in Colorado. Couldn't even hardly run around the bases. They asked me, can you go? And I'd been hot, right? So it was like, put me in there. If I hit it, I'm not, you're going to have to pinch run for me. So they know that going into it and the expectations are managed in that stage. And we're able to, to move forward with the opportunity to go out there and, and get the, get the at bat and produce for your team. But early in my career, I, I wasn't in a place, um, you know, from an identity standpoint where I was able to handle being the top prospect and, you know, the franchise player that was being touted around the organization to then going back to AAA without feeling like I let everybody down, including my family and friends at home, the organization, the coaches that had, you know, I've grinded with me through the minor leagues. And, and again, that's something I've talked about in a few of my tweets is just my gratitude, right? For the people within all these organizations that supported me through these ups and downs. And, and there were times where I didn't treat those people with the respect that they deserved. And I didn't have that perspective of gratitude uh, because I was stuck in my own shit. And it was tough for me to really pull myself out and say, you know what? I'm a human being. I'm going through this, right? I need help. I don't have all the answers. But again, getting to that place in my career, I had to convince a lot of people that I had it figured out, right? And I think that's one of those catch-22s with professional athletes is when you feel like you don't have it figured out and you've convinced everybody around you that you do, it's a really tough uh, dynamic to manage on a daily basis when you're showing up to the field trying to compete uh, for a job or, or compete for a spot in the lineup or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, when really the focus should be on winning baseball games. I've loved every second of this. I could probably do it for an hour, but you want to be a good parent and you need to be out of here soon. So <laughs> let's give you an opportunity to uh, give your pitch one more time here before I thank you for uh, sharing this with us, because this yeah, is stuff sure. that I think a lot of people don't want to think about necessarily yep. with sports, but really should, especially when they're cavalierly calling people bums on social media every two minutes, maybe Think about the fact that they're human beings out there trying to do something really, really hard. Yeah, I, I think if I stand for anything, right, it's humanizing the world of professional sports. As much as fans deserve to have an opinion and root and boo and all the things, is just understanding that who you're who you're targeting on social media with all this hate. Yeah. Ask yourself, where's the hate coming from, right? Like, I, I get it, you're a big fan, but l- let's be honest here. Like, this person that missed the field goal, I mean, look at the Bass situation with Buffalo. It's oh, like, yeah. do you think that guy went out there and tried to miss that field goal? to nobody, you think, yeah, nobody feels worse than he does. It, nobody does, yeah. right? And it's easy for us as humans to want to pile on so we can feel better about ourselves for whatever reason it is. I'm guilty of this, too. I'm a sports fan. I'm a fantasy football guru and somebody that yells at the screen every Sunday, like, how do you do that, right? But Again, being able to detach from those situations, understand at the professional level, these are human beings. Doesn't mean you can, you're not entitled to your opinion and, and to be able to go out there and cheer or boo, but just remember that those are human beings. And in the youth sports space, right? Three Athletics is a company. Our parent guidebook, Hero, it's an interactive guidebook, as you alluded to. There's work that parents need to do, right? To to help impact this culture of youth sports that I believe has become more toxic than it has a place for kids to really develop in a safe space and become what they're, they're capable of becoming. Right. And and utilizing a tool like hero and the other, and the other products that we'll be introducing over the next 12 to 18 months, it just is an opportunity for us as parents to take a step back and say, Hey, I don't have all the answers. Right. And and that's okay. And and I think I might be doing this right, but what's the harm in, in spending a couple hours sitting down, going through this book and doing the exercise and really 
being able to, to, to do that self-inventory, create self-awareness, but also then reframe these conversations with our kids. Because I think 99.9% of parents want to do the best by their children. They just, a lot of times are operating from their subconscious. They're, they're not even aware of, right? These experiences right. that they had in their childhood or their playing experience that they have to force this on their kids. And it's like, you're, you're actually doing more harm than you are doing good. And really, at the end of the day, most of these kids are never going to play professional sports. And at that point, I hope each parent would would echo this is we want to have a loving, healthy relationship with our kids. And we want to raise healthy individuals who can go out and succeed in life yeah. and deal forget, with failure. Forget sports, right? You yes. know, like if it comes down to it and sports is not there tomorrow, are you are you having a good relationship with your kid? And are you teaching them life skills to navigate through, you know, life, which is hard, just like baseball is. But, you know, um, I just appreciate what you're doing, man. I, I wish you can continued success with it. And um, yeah, the only thing, hey, can I lighten it up for just one second? For sure. I got, I got five or 10 minutes, man. So no rest. Okay. All right. So l- let me, let me ask you this. Do you ever think about the fact that you struck out Joey Votto. How, All the time. Do, do you, like I, 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 we won't focus on the ERA from that one yeah. inning pitch because you know case, that's, case uh, for nine. Case for nine's pretty good though. Yeah, yeah. Case for nine's yeah. pretty good. So, um, t- can you can you tell me what that was like? And do you re- do you remember anything specific about it other than the fact that you did strike out Joey Votto in a relief appearance? Yeah, I remember, okay, I remember pitching and I've been lobbying for this opportunity. I was the 24th or 25th man on the roster at this point. Great relationships with the coaches. We went up to Danny and Hurl, like, what do you think? So I said, yeah, go get loose. And I remember going down to the bullpen. I'm just like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing down here. I'm using Tony Watson's glove. I don't have a pitching toe on my face, whatever, <laughs> right? So I'm already overthinking it, but I get out there. I give up a hit to Billy Hamilton. I hate to admit that. Uh a uh, couple of walks and I started to feel like, you know, I don't want to let the team down because I'm out here to eat up an inning, but I'm also trying to get somebody out. And I remember Votto coming up to the plate and Russell Martin being the catcher who Russ is still a good friend of mine and, and <clears throat> getting to the, I think it was a two, two count and Russ puts down the heater and I shook him off. Uh, Russell, you know, he's a Canadian baseball Hall of Famer. Um, you know, perennial potentially, you know, had a great career, right? Just not a catcher that, uh, Slap, slappy little left-handed outfielder coming in to pitch should be shaking him off. And I shook him off because I felt like the changeup is my best pitch. If I can throw it for a strike, it's the best chance I have at a swing and miss here. So shook off Russ, executed probably the best changeup I've ever thrown in my life. Uh, Joey Votto swings through it and just walking off the mound, just pounding my glove, <laughs> fired up like I just got the biggest out in the, in the eighth inning, you know, in, in a wild card or a playoff game, right? I mean, that was a, a peak performance moment for me. Uh, I don't think STFU would have the same punch from you. No offense, but you know, <laughs> no, no offense taken, but that, that was the one story. If I told a story and I told a lot of stories, but if there's one story I consistently told for the rest of my career, I always waited for the right opportunity to then drop the line on somebody like, Hey, you know, you know, I got a big league strikeout. And they're like, Oh really? I'm like, yeah. Former NL MVP. Maybe, you know, maybe you've heard of him, you know, Joey Votto. I'd have it on a shirt. I, I would wear a shirt. I, I messed yeah. up and I didn't save the ball. I, I wanted to have him sign it um, just because, again, it's one of those fluke things that's never going to happen again in my career. And he probably never struck out again against a position player. So I can definitely hang my hat on that. 
hey, he's he's a tough guy to get out in general, let alone strikeout. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. mean, I just I had to ask you about it, man, because like you know all these you, you have all these things you remember about a career, but there are certain things that just probably stick with you a little bit more just because of the oddity of it. Absolutely. So, yeah. Hey, so everybody, scan the QR code, learn more, and if you learn nothing else today, you learned that. Uh, like Dougie Smith said earlier here in the chat, the Pirates are really good at turning out character of alumni, aren't they? I think, uh, Travis, if nothing else, man, you learned like uh, throughout your journey to become a better person never ends, right? Yeah, and I, and I think Hurdle and Huntington, and, and as much as the you know fan base may agree or disagree, I think – they had a lot of focus on the right things in terms of developing a winning culture, but also focusing on that human development, right? Which is a big part of 3A for me is human development over player development, because we can have the best players in the world, but if they're shitty human beings, they're going to deal with the mental health issues. They're going to be, you know, that type of person that you don't want out representing your organization, the community, and somebody who's going to be dealing with a bunch of things, right? That we as parents hopefully want to help our children avoid, or most more importantly, be prepared of how to handle those situations when they inevitably come. That's great, man, Travis. Thank you so much. I hope we stay in touch and uh, maybe, For sure. maybe as this program expands, come back and tell us more. Sounds great. Much All right, respect. Hey, I'm gonna Much take respect, a, Travis. Seriously. I'm gonna take another break, everybody. So stick around. We got a special announcement coming up. Pittsburgh Sports, we take pride in coverage that connects our city's fans to their favorite teams. Now, that connection's stronger than ever. Introducing our all-new state-of-the-art app. Find expert inside reporting and original podcasts. Check live box scores. Track the latest stats. Chat it up with our community of thousands of fans, all in one place. The new app from DK Pittsburgh Sports. Coverage that connects. Back to the Pirates Fan Forum here on DK Pittsburgh Sports. Third break. Kind of weird, Jim. It is. But uh, special thank you to Travis because that was awesome. And I was, knew that. I knew it was going to fly by, Gary. Yeah. I knew it. I, like, I like, knew it was going to be everything we wanted to. And, yeah. you know, you may have seen that the QR code changed up top there. And there's another oh. logo up there. It's a Y. And it's why, time to make Gary? our... Why? It's time to make our announcement, Jim. I mean, we, we told people on social media a little bit. We've got some merch coming your way, and we've partnered with a pretty cool company to do it. So the company is Yins, and you can find them. I have them in the crawler down here, Yins Shop. Uh, very cool store. They have all kinds of Yins stuff. It's all one logo for all the teams. It's it's pretty cool, the origin story of the logo. Taylor's going to be on with us next week. He'll tell us about it and talk ball. Um, we're going to have merch for you. I'll give you a quick preview. Here's some shirts. Ooh. <laughs> We're going to have hats. We're yeah, going to have local. bags. They're We're going to have stickers. They're local. They're Yinzers through and through. And I think this was important to Jim and I. When we partnered with somebody, we wanted to make sure it was somebody that we believed in. You know, um, 
Yeah. We've turned down several opportunities over the years to, to have somebody partner with us and, and provide something like this. And, um, Taylor's just the right guy. He is a, um, sponsor on Bucks in the Basement as well. So, you know, I've known him for a while, but just his mission is just to unite Pittsburgh under their one flag. <laughs> you know, it's the Yin's brand. It's really cool. Um, we're happy to be partnered with them and they're going to be sponsoring a segment every show. Taylor's going to tell you an awful lot more next week, but just wanting everything to be perfect. We figured let's launch it when we all feel good about it next week, you know, entirely, but I uh, wanted to make sure we got it out to everybody. And Jim, you wanted to just talk a little bit about some of this other stuff we got going on. Right. Um, and here's uh Taylor right here. Stoked for the guys. Appreciate you. We do too, Taylor. We can't wait to have you on next week. It's going to be a and, lot of fun. And he can make hoodies happen is, is what I'm seeing. So uh, that's right <laughs> up my, that's right up mine and Gary's alley. So yes. Yep. So it's good stuff and we're really excited about it. Um, so Jim, you wanted to talk about our Chapman just a little bit. Um, yeah. I don't think we need to get too deep into it. And you saw how I slyly tried to get Travis to talk about it in some way, shape or form, but Quick thoughts, because I don't want this to be an hour and a half funeral show like some I've heard about this subject. Well, I mean, you know, it's just funny. Can we not Can we not simply enjoy anything without worrying about 10 other things, as I guess is what I would say? Um, a, it, it makes the team better right away. Right yeah. away, it makes this team better. And that's what we are, are, are looking for. And until we know what, if anything else, they do, uh, I don't know that there's a, a, a reason to react to it any other way than saying it, it's a good signing. He's still a really good pitcher. Um, and I, I'm not going to overreact when they do, when they do that. Um, especially not negatively. Now I know some people have, a, uh, have an issue with him. Uh, you know, from some of his history, and that's fine. Um, I can respect that, but from a baseball standpoint, he's still he's still a really good player. Yeah, and the approach I took on this subject was, you know, I felt it was disingenuous to not bring up the stuff that he's done, terrible things he's done, you know, or been accused of, or whatever. But I I took it from a purely baseball standpoint because, first of all. At worst, I think he's here for a year. So it's not really worth like acting like they're changing the dynamic of the whole team over it or something, or, right. or I'm not going to root for them or something silly. I'm probably never going to like Haroldis Chapman. I don't really need to. I just need him to get three outs every time he's called on. And that's what I hope he does. The team is better. I can't deny that. Uh, it's not the direction I would have gone. As far as like fortifying that, that sure. bullpen, I, you know, I honestly think if you're going to spend that kind of money, you know, go and get Robert Stevenson back, you know, do something like that. That said, they needed a lefty. He was the best lefty available. I can't deny that either. Um, hey, 10 and a half million is not anything to sneeze at as far as a commitment either. Yeah. So we complain about this team not spending and I'm not going to say not there now that they did. Right. And that's the thing. I think a lot of people are saying, well, you know, could it be used for something else? Uh, potentially. But 
that's got to be a two-way street too. And until we see if they do anything else, I, I see it as a positive. And um, the bullpen is shaping. Let's talk about it just from a you know a game day scenario. This bullpen is starting to look really, really good. Now we have to be able to deliver the bullpen something good to protect, but bullpen's looking good, Gary. It really is. Totally agree. And uh, we'll talk about it more next week. I'm sure after we've had a little bit of time to digest it a little bit more. And I think we'll probably see some repercussion moves in the, in, in the meantime that, that we can kind of wrap it all in and have a complete thought and conversation about it. But this show is about Travis. It was great yeah. having him on. Fun walking down memory lane, looking at some of that stuff and just listening to the stories and his cause, man, that's great stuff. And that's what I I would encourage anybody that, you know, has watched this or listened to it and you've got friends or it's something for you that you think might help pass it along, man. And not everybody knows that this stuff is out there. And, um, um, Travis is somebody that's really trying to do something and take something that he's learned and, and, and can apply it and help other people apply it as well. And, um, you know, spread the word if you, if, if you think it'll help someone. Absolutely. And uh, I'm going to wrap the show with Ben, like I always do. Let's go, Buck! Yeah, buddy. Thanks, everybody. Great show.